The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, we're joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus Fenstaden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, earlier this month, the United Nations reported that the world's population is now at 8 billion people. That is just incredible to think about, especially when you think and you consider that it only took 11 years to go from 7 billion people to 8 billion people. Now, while the world's population has gone up significantly, income inequality has actually decreased a lot when you step back and look at it over the past century. That's thanks largely to improved living standards in China, India, even here in Vietnam, where I'm at, and other parts of Asia. And of course, there have been some impressive advances in parts of Africa, the Americas, and other parts of the Global South as well. But what's strange is while that's happened, within individual countries, inequality has actually become even more extreme. Now, stay with me here. It's a little bit confusing. And it's not something just limited to developing countries. So when we think of inequality, oftentimes it's in the context of the poorest countries in the world. But this is also a huge problem in some of the world's most advanced economies with weak social systems like China. And again, in this case, I consider China to be an advanced economy, not necessarily a developed economy. Now, that's a point of contention because the Chinese say they are a developing country. But if you live in certain parts of China, especially on the eastern coast, it's on par with many of the world's most advanced societies. But this is a problem that's in China, the U.S., and it's becoming more extreme in many global south regions, especially now in the post-pandemic era. And wealth equality is also closely tied with demographics. Now, we often think of this purely in the context of overpopulated countries. But the weird thing about this is that the problem is also an issue in countries with declining birth rates. And that's what we're going to talk about today, both in the context of China and Africa. Now, Kobus, let's first break down two big stereotypes that have long shaped this discussion. There is a perception in many parts of Africa and elsewhere around the world that China is overpopulated and needs to promote emigration so it releases the population pressures at home. We've heard this for years, that China is exporting people to reside in Africa and other parts of the developing world because it's overpopulated at home. You'll oftentimes hear on YouTube or Twitter that China has 3 billion people, 4 billion people, huge amounts of people that are not grounded in any type of fact. Now, at the same time, we often hear a lot about Africa's demographic dividend, that is, the world's youngest and fastest growing population, which makes it a tremendous asset for the global economy. The fact is that both of these characterizations are misleading, incomplete, and I guess if you look at it in certain ways, just factually wrong. So, Kobus, let's start our discussion there. Well, in the case of China, obviously, this kind of long narrative of China being overpopulated and the very kind of idea of the Chinese population standing in for a, a big population is starting to change. You know, China's population is aging very rapidly, going into a similar pattern as, as countries like Japan and South Korea. And with it, that is being exacerbated by the historical legacy of the one-child policy. 
In the case of Africa, yes, there is a big youth population, but it, it really is kind of on living on a knife's edge because if that youth population is combined with rapid development, then that is a kind of a youth dividend. But if not, then you know it raises a lot of questions about what those young people are going to be doing. And that varies from country to country. So that's why it's, in this case, it's not productive to look at the continent as a whole because there are wide variations depending on where you are. So let's get a perspective on this from somebody who's been studying this for literally decades and has been looking at the trends and can help us better understand the trajectories of both Africa's demographic trend lines as well as China's. Michele Brune is a member of the Center for the Analysis of Public Policies at the University of Modena and Reggio in Italy, and also a fellow at the Global Labor Organization. He is also the author of the book China, the Belt and Road Initiative and the Century of Great Migration, and the author of a new research paper that's coming out soon on the impact of demography on income inequality. Michele, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Michele, let's start with those two stereotypes that I talked about, with China being overpopulated and Africa's demographic dividend. You're somewhat of a contrarian on some of those issues. Let's kind of set the table with those two misperceptions and what you think of that. First of all, I will use data published by the United Nations. So it's not my idea, it's what the United Nations are telling us. At the present moment, the situation is this. Total population of China is expected to reach a maximum probably next year and then started to decline from 1.4 something billion, then it is expected to go down. Working age population, which is the source of labor supply, started to decline in 2013 and by now has been declining for nine years at quite fast rate. So this is China. And for the future, the basic problem it's not so much aging. Aging would be online with what is happening or has happened before in Europe and Japan. The basic point is that working age population will shrink in an incredible way. Not so much from a percentage point of view, because there are many countries where this phenomenon will be more pronounced, but in absolute terms. Sorry to stop you very quickly. What exactly is working age population? And can you give us a few numbers in terms of the decline so we have a, a little bit of an understanding of what we're talking about in the context of China? Normally, for international comparison, working age population is defined in the range 15 to 64. As a matter of fact, China retiring age is as early as around 60. But it is many people are still working. So that's, I mean, difference between what is the legislation and which, what is actually going on. The working age population peaked at a little more than 1 billion in 2013. Since then, it has probably already lost around 40 million, and in the next 30 years could lose other 200 million, which is a huge amount, I mean, if you compare with the size of Europe or, or the United States. So, but there are countries where this phenomenon will be more pronounced. Uh, now, I will not give you data because I could... But, I mean, Singapore, for instance, will be much more pronounced. Eastern Europe will have values much, much bigger than that. Bulgaria, for instance. But even Russia and Ukraine, where the population is already declining, so which opens up the interesting question, what will happen after the war? If we move to Africa, the situation is totally the opposite. i just give you a few numbers which probably can clarify the issue. In 1950, the total population of Africa represented just, if I remember correctly, 8%. 
and uh, Europe, America, North America, Australia would probably be up to 28-29%. The percentage of working age population was even higher, more than 30% in, say, the Western world and only 8 in Africa. At the end of the century, the population of Western countries would be about 8%. So this 8% of the world's population is what you're talking about, right? Exactly. And Africa could be up to 42% in absence of migration, okay? This is a scenario published by the United Nations, and it is a scenario in absence with a zero migration balance, okay? So this means that the center of gravity is totally moving from the Western world to the underdeveloped countries, mainly Africa, but not only. So the question, then moving to the question of the dividends, you see, China had a very special history. China total fertility rate, which is basically, to make it very simple, the number of children per woman, uh, was about six children per woman in 1950. And that was a value similar to that of Africa and mainly to the underdeveloped world. But what happened was that in 1980, in China, it was already down to three children per woman. I'm talking about the situation before the one-child policy, okay? And at the same time, Africa was still up to six. So this is an extraordinary impact on the history of both situations. Because on one side, China had a huge amount of children getting to school age for 20 years. But China was able to face it. China gave education basically to the children coming in, despite the huge numbers, which means also to build infrastructures, uh, train teachers and so on. Probably the education was not so great, but it was a generalized phenomenon, so that by the 80s, it was considered a big success, even by UNESCO. Africa did not. So what happened? Then China started a renovation policy with huge uh, changes in the economic structure. But when that happened, the labor force of China was ready. So first China was able to face what I would define the education challenge, and then was able to face the employment challenge since it had the infrastructure and the investment, but also the labor force. And these things, in my opinion, are an explanation of the capacity of China to reduce the gap in income distribution. By the way, the data you said before about income distribution, to be more correct, the between-country inequalities, or what you want to call the global inequalities, started to decline, according to Binanovich, only at the beginning of this century. And why did it decline? Because of China. Because China was able to bring up a large middle class. That was the main reason why the global inequality declined. But at the same time, the difference between the per capita income of the poorest countries and of the richest countries increased, not only in quantitative, but also in qualitative terms. So personally, I don't believe Africa has got dividends. My impression is that China has got challenges, and for the moment has lost the challenges. And all sub-Saharan countries... Sorry to interrupt you. So if you could lean into this issue around Africa's population dividend or not a, a little bit more, like what are some of the development implications of this kind of large young population for Africa, and what kind of measures would you like to see African governments implement? Personally, I don't believe it is possible to do very much now inside single countries. China, given the way in which demographic trends have been in Africa, finds itself, in the majority of cases, facing two problems. A lot of children coming to school, 
and a lot of people looking for jobs. Now, are these dividends? To me, they are problems. Because how do you face that? Just to give you a number, in the next 25 years, Africa altogether, so even with the good cases put it in, let's say Tunisia or, or Morocco, would need to build, to create 19 million jobs per year in order to keep the rate of employment constant. The rate of employment is the ratio between the number of people working and the population in working age. 19 million. And what do they do now, by the way? So 19 million is the goal. What do they do now? They cannot. I mean, they are not doing it. We don't have exact data. But the comparison could be with China. China, at the maximum, was creating 10 million with a larger population. So how can poor Africa, with lack of infrastructure, a labor force which is not well-trained, create 19 million jobs per year in the next 25. And by the way, the situation will continue to be like that. So to me, in my, in my vision, uh, Africa is a demographic bomb, uh, which can be faced only by exporting labor, which is the wrong way, because it is the other side of the world which should import labor, because they will need it. So I, my idea is that the only path to world peace is the organization of huge migrations organized by countries who need labor and co-managed with countries who have an excess of labor. And to do that... So to put this in context, sorry to interrupt you again, to put this in context, in your writing, you characterize the current kind of global situation as one of a massive labor polarization. So I wonder if you could explain to us what that actually means. Let's say we can classify the countries of the world in three groups. In one group, which I would call classical countries because they reflect the situation of the world, let's say, in the 19th century, there is basically an unlimited supply of labor. Working age population is exploding, and I don't see how these countries could create an amount of job coherent with the increase in supply. On the other side, on the opposite side, we have what I've been calling postmodern economies. In these economies, working age population will drop very fast. Some will lose even 40, 50% of the working age population. So what can they do? Well, the normal thesis is that they can face this with increasing productivity, robotization, artificial intelligence. Now, theoretically, it is possible. In practice, I don't believe it is, for many reasons on which we can really discuss. I mean, many people will say the opposite, but... I can make the point very easily. In the history of humankind in the last 200 years, all the big industrial revolution, industrial or electrical or, or computer-driven revolution, have increased employment, not decreased employment. Not because productivity has always increased, but these events have changed the structure of employment, so more skilled labor, more educated labor, and less okay, uh, basic uh, unskilled labor, but they had another effect. The effect was to create new needs. You see, if I have a, a cell telephone, probably, yes, I don't need any more people on the switch, but the fact that I have the cell telephone makes me imagine a new things I can do. I remember when the PC came in, okay? If you go back to that time, you will see a lot of articles saying, PC will destroy 3 million jobs, 5 million jobs, 10 million jobs. In fact, it did create jobs for the simple reason that we found new things to do, that the new technology opened us new desires, 
for new goods, new services. And this brought to the production of those goods and services and to an increase in employment. So I don't believe China, for instance, or Japan can just face uh, the situation with productivity. Also because they are service economy. So we are talking of computer in the health sector, possible. But will they be enough? Elderly people don't like it, by the way. And so on and so on. The difference, though, between today's technology and previous technologies is that previous technologies, the machines did not think. We're now in the fourth industrial revolution. We do have artificial intelligence, big data, machine learning. The machines are talking to each other and are far more productive than previous technologies. So you go to a Ford plant, which used to employ thousands of people, and now there's a tenth of that that is building a car. And I know here from talking to factory managers in Vietnam that they're working very hard to automate the textile process and the uh, shoemaking process with artificial intelligence and machines so that they don't need to have hundreds of thousands of migrant workers to assemble Nike shoes. They can do it with a fraction of that population. That distorts in many respects the traditional trajectory that developing countries have used, including China, to move out of an agrarian economy into a light manufacturing and eventually into heavy manufacturing and eventually into a services economy. That pathway feels like it's closing down because you just don't need as many people to make a lot more stuff. So if that's the case, and I don't know if that's the case, but that's a theory, then Africa is going to miss the boat or other underdeveloped regions because China will not have to offshore manufacturing and the United States can onshore manufacturing because they don't need as many people to do it. The machines will do it. Well, the size of the sector you're talking about is less than 30% of total employment. I mean, for sure, China has 100 million people in agriculture that will be not needed, they will get old, they will get out from the labor force, and they will not be substituted, okay? That's for sure. But then when you think about automation, artificial intelligence, you are talking about a sector of the economy, which is not the dominant one, because the dominant sector will be the service sector. Now, how much is that possible? Well, not in the poorest countries. I mean, a country like Vietnam is still not a service economy. This is a manufacturing and an agrarian economy. Well, are you sure? I mean, uh, what is the size of the employment service sector in Vietnam? I, I don't have the data. No, I don't either, to be fair, too. I would guess more than 50%, for sure. It is 60% in China, uh, 63 if I am not wrong now. So, as you said, the question in Africa is more delicate. I would not be able really to make a statement now about that. What I, I'm trying to say is that Western countries, the countries which have defined postmodern, they will need labor. What I'm trying to say is that these countries cannot face the decline in labor force driven by the decline in working age population just by productivity increase by automation. And for the two reasons I said before, because all this, even artificial intelligence, will increase our desire to have new goods and new services, and because the big automation will relate to a small size of the economy. I mean, I'm sure many people will think the opposite, okay? But <laughs> this is to open a discussion, which I hope someone will pick it up. 
So, as you mentioned before, you are advising for much increased labor migration. And, you know, we, we are really seeing a lot, of, a lot of African migration to Europe and a lot of European complaints about African migration. Compared to the current flows of migration, what would be a more sustainable kind of model of large-scale labor migration that, like, if you were, you know, kind of able to, say, advise either the governments of the European Union, for example, like, what would you advise them to do? Well... The advice is very simple somehow. We should sit around the table, uh, not see migration as a problem, but as an opportunity. And we should, first of all, clearly analyze how many people we need. See, the need of foreign labor is determined by two elements. One is the decline in supply, which can be easily forecast because the people in the labor market in the last 25, 30 years are known. They are already born and we know how many of them will exit. The second is the increase in employment. Here, the, the productivity factors come in, right? But we should be around the economic crisis. If the European economy will boom, or if the China economy will boom, if productivity will continue on the present trend, well, in the next 25 years, the amount of migrants needed by Europe is probably 80, 90 million. My estimate is 3.4 million per year in a business as usual scenario, in which employment will continue to increase as it has in the last 25 years. It could be much less if we have an economic crisis. It could be much more if we, our economy will boom again. Uh, we cannot predict long term, but we can easily predict five years, which means a very simple thing from an economic point of view. We should not only plan investment. We should also plan migrations. The two are strictly connected. Because the economic growth we will reach will imply a certain amount of migrants. But this is very difficult to accept for two reasons. One, an history of racist position, which widespread all over the world. And the second, an economic paradigm, the neoclassical paradigm, according to which the labor market is always able to reach equilibrium just using labor forces and active labor policies. But if we go back to the mind, to the use model or other models, which for instance were used in China, well, the situation can be very different. You can have a situation in which the labor is not available. I mean, stop, full stop. And you cannot just increase the, the wage to make it available or, or increase the training, because, I mean, if the people are not there, you know, how can you do that? Japan has reached the level of presence in the labor market above 90%. You cannot go one under ten, right? And I think Japan is an excellent example of how stubborn countries can be. And China is another example where they would rather have declining economic performance. They would rather have greater inconvenience, reduced productivity, rather than to bring in foreign labor to be able to increase that productivity. There is virtually no immigration into Japan. And China is also the same way because there's a surplus of people in Southeast Asia and South Asia that could be migrated into these advanced economies in North Asia, but they choose not to. In the United States, we're seeing the same thing. We have decided as a country that we would prefer to close the borders and have the inconveniences that come with a lack of services brought on by a shortage of workers, an increase in cost of food and all these other things. Your prime minister was elected in part on a platform of shutting down the borders. Okay, so I understand what an economist thinks, which is in an ideal world, we have a surplus of labor in one part of the globe. And we should bring them into another part of the globe 
But the reality is it's just not going to happen. And everything Europe is doing today is like the United States, Japan, and China, is to make sure that people don't come in. So if we can have a little bit more honest conversation now, then that conversation is Europe is going to fortify its borders to make sure that more black and brown people from the Middle East and Africa do not come in. What happens demographically to these countries where they don't have an outlet to emigrate? Eric, it will not happen. Because when you talk about economies, you must be also talking about businessmen. I mean, it is not my government who will decide how many migrants we need. It will be the production system. It will be the companies who do not find their jobs. Illegal immigration will be the result. You see, the problem is not if we have migration or not migration. We will have immigration, as we did in the past. Europe has 30 million migrants, right? But we did not want them. Why did they come here? They came illegally, quote-unquote, right? Because companies needed them. Is our, our Italian companies goes to, go to close down because we have a right-wing government? I don't believe it. Because these companies are right-wing companies, but they need labor. So if you open the Italian television, you see entrepreneurs crying and saying, we don't have workers. And then the answer is, we need to train people. But if there are no people to be trained, how what you do? So people will come. They will not come by boats. That's just a small portion. The majority just come with a plane, airplane, a ticket. And they get down with a visa and then start working. I mean, that's what happened in the last 25 years. It seems that we are not learning from the past. You see, I made this forecast the first time in 1986. And I made the forecast to 2001. And I was almost exactly at the number, okay? 1.5 million. But then after that, it was easy to continue to forecast. Now, we had a crisis for two, three years. So our population has been declining. But, uh, you know, I'll give you another example. I wrote one book in 2009, it was a paper, right? Which called Population Will Boom in Italy, right? The forecast at the time was population will decline to 51 million from 55 or 56. I said, no, it will explode because we will need migrants. Migrants will come in and the population will increase. And this is what happened. We reached almost 61 million. Now we are down one couple of million because the economy is in crisis. Italians are going away, some migrants are coming in, but the balance is negative. As soon as the system will start again, illegal migration will start again. The real question is not if we will have migration. The real question is, do we want to have illegal migrants throw away money to build walls or invest properly in schools to prepare the migrants we need? That's the real question. But it's very difficult to put this message through. I can just make you an anecdote. I don't know if you then you wanted to cut it off. I had made this proposal to an irrelevant left-wing European review, and my article was refused. I did not understand on which basis. Anyway, it was just a proposal, right? Which I thought also was well supported by statistical information. People don't want to hear, and this has always happened in the history, I mean... There are truths that nobody wants to listen to. And I believe this is uh, one of these cases.
In relation to Africa, I completely see your logic that this kind of like undocumented migration will keep going and that the issue isn't really about migration or not migration, but rather about good migration or bad migration. Or, you know, or then kind of like migration that benefits everyone and migration that costs everyone. But at the same time, we're also seeing a lot of new kind of barriers to migration, frequently funded by the European Union in, in, in parts of Africa. So as African economies face more and more of these pressures, what do their development trajectory look like for you? Like, is there any way for African economies to turn this kind of like big population of young people to their advantage? I don't know. I, I don't think I'm as good as an economist to, to provide an answer. I, numbers are really overwhelming. Uh, certainly, the first step is education. I mean, that's... But I don't know what is the situation now. Years ago, I was in Mozambique, and I remember at that time, elementary school were on three times a day. One class in the morning, one class in the afternoon, and one class in the evening, okay? And I don't think at that moment Mozambique has reached the peak of youth in Korea. I don't know enough Africa to take position on this. Numbers tell me that the situation is there. There's very, very difficult problems. But certainly education would be the first step. But then the second is to find jobs for these people coming out from school. And the number I gave you before, 19 million jobs per year, not even China was able to do that. I mean, how is it possible? So I suppose that this is also a world peace problem. If Africa will not be able to reduce, if the world, say, acting together, will not be able to reduce the excess supply present in Africa, but not only, also in some Asian countries, right? Bangladesh or, you know, if we are not able to do that at the global level, we have the world peace will be at risk because what will happen in African countries where poverty, unemployment, uh, lack of, you know, is not food the real problem. The problem is work. Can you imagine generations that will never been able to find the proper jobs? Because this is, this is the point. Could be that 50% of the young people now will enter the labor market in the next 25 years will never be able to have a proper job. Then I watch CNN and Africa is the land of opportunity, right? And then I go to another channel and I see that children die because there are no few cents to buy pills. Which one is the real Africa? So I don't feel I have enough knowledge to really say what is the solution. But to, it seems to me that there is only one way to reduce the demographic pressure on Africa. You know, this will also start something very good cycles, uh, more remittances, fewer children will be born also because as soon as you have migration, also the fertility rate will decline. So you start a cycle. If on this I can add another point, data are there, but nobody has realized that in 2050 or 60, working age population of the planet will start to decline and the total population of the earth will start to decline in about 50 years, 60 years. So we don't need to go to Mars because we have too many people. Population will decline and probably will decline very fast. And this is a very good news for many reasons. The problem is that we have to get there without trying to reduce this polarization which exists. If we get there, reducing the polarization, a new year could start. Although I'm not so sure that economists will be able even to do that, but that's another point. Yeah, so if the situation in Africa is somewhat dire or, again, uncertain, 
Let's close our discussion thinking about China, because there's the old line that says China is going to get old before it gets rich. And again, that too may come as a surprise for a lot of people who see China as the second largest economy in the world. They see the maglev train in Shanghai. They see these beautiful downtown all over the country, and they see the largest market for Mercedes and Rolls Royce, and they think, well, China's already rich. But when you look at an aggregate on a per capita basis, China still has a long way to go. And with this aging population, they are in a race against time because they are facing the same pressures that Japan and other countries are facing, that their elderly population could potentially crush the economy in terms of the cost to sustain those older people. So let's close our discussion with a look forward on China and what's your prognosis? In a way, China is not in such a bad situation as has been described. Uh, the aging process is fast, but not faster than what happened in Europe. The real problem is that, you know, pensions are paid by people who work, right? So if you have a reduction in the level of employment, fewer people pay more pensions. That's the idea which has gone through and which have brought to the changes in the pension system and so on and so on. But at the same time, suppose that more people will work and you get migrants, right? But even without migrants, I should say that a correct analysis of future, for instance, if you use a different indicator, because normally the indicator which is used to establish the problem of aging is dividing the number of old people to see how many old people there are for people in working age. Now change that and imagine that you measure the number of people to be sustained by those who sustain them. So to use not the population in working age, but the employment. If you do that, the situation of China looks pretty much the same as that of Europe, even in the future, and even without migrants. Also, this is, I, I'm not sure, is the right perception. You know, many times things are based on how you measure them. What is the metric you're using? And also in this case, my impression, this is what I've written in the last 10 years, is that the matrix is wrong. And once you use the right matrix, so the employment and not working age population, which contains a lot of people who need to be sustained, right? People who are still going to school, people who take care of the house, uh, people who are sick, and then you concentrate on uh, employment, then the situation of China is not so bad. What is bad is the ratio <laughs> between the elderly. The real problem is to take care of the elderly. i give you an example, a number. In 1950, for every person above 70, there were 21 persons between 25 and 69. Now we are down to 11. In 30 years, we will be down to two without migration, which means that or you take care of the elderly or you work, which has a terrible impact on the situation of women, for instance, right? which normally are the caregiver in our society. So it is all these elements which I think, you see, I don't want to, to say that I know the future. What I'm trying to say is that I would like to see these arguments discussed without prejudice and with open mind. I could be totally wrong, okay? Many times economists, demographers have been wrong, starting from Malthusson. So I, I, I'm sure I'm also wrong somehow, right? But I would like to see someone tell me why and how. And you see, one, at the end of my book, I, I wrote this thing saying that, well, I don't know if you like uh, mystery stories, but Ellery Queen, at a certain moment, has this intuition that he would say, I've given to the readers all the elements to find the killer, right? And he would play this game and say, okay, you know as much as I do. And generally, he was honest. They were honest because they were too. And they said, okay, who is the killer? So I said what I think will happen. I hope 
with the same data, someone will tell me I'm wrong and show where I am wrong. Well, we hope that this conversation today is exactly part of that mission to have that open conversation and to challenge some of the perceptions that frame this debate. Again, I think this conversation is long overdue, and I'm so happy that we had the chance to speak with you, Michele. Michele Brune is a member of the Center for the Analysis of Public Policies at the University of Modena and Reggio in Italy, and also a fellow at the Global Labor Organization. Michele, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your fascinating insights with us today. Thank you very much, Eric. Thank you very much, Corbus. I hope we have time to continue our discussion some other time. Kobus Michele gave us a lot to think about in terms of challenging some of the prevailing narratives that are out there. Again, we always hear about the demographic dividend in Africa, and then we always also hear about the doom and gloom in China. And it's interesting that he is taking a contrarian view on both of those. I am far more skeptical of him, and I don't question his data. I mean, I have no reason to question his data, of course. And he's saying he's just using UN figures and World Bank figures and things like that. The part that I can't get my head around is the solutions. Because at the end of the day, the politics of the moment today and for the foreseeable future, and it doesn't look like it's going to ease anytime soon, is that Japan, China, South Korea, Europe, the United States, all the wealthy economies that have declining populations do not want people from the global south to come in. Specifically, they don't want people from Africa in the Middle East to come in. So I don't know how this plays out. And his point that it's going to be illegal immigration, yes, but that's just going to create enormous political strain in Europe and in the global north, which will then, I think, provoke more extreme politics. And this cycle kind of accelerates. That's my concern. Yes, I think in a lot a lot of those conclusions actually, you know, agree with Michele's points, you know, that there is massive labor polarization, that migration is really actually the only real solution to it, and that a lot of it is politically very difficult, which means that it will probably be less than optimum migration flows. You know, so I think all of those things, you know, kind of like run in line with his own conclusions. I think as a world, we do need a real reckoning with these issues, with the role of nation-state borders, for example, in, you know, kind of in blocking where people need to go, and the very real kind of like race politics that underlie all of this. You know, it's like as we're seeing that politics in large parts of the global north is veering dangerously right wing. You know, kind of we're seeing very kind of like hard right wing turns in many European countries, for example. So there's no easy line to draw between these countries' kind of ideas of themselves and kind of racial politics, you know, which which, you know, are some of the most kind of toxic politics in the world. So there's no easy answers there. You know, kind of like we need like full on conceptual reorganizations and rethinking of who we are, how the world works, etc. And, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. It's interesting because during our conversation today, it brought me back to a discussion that you and I had with a member of the European Parliament when I was in Johannesburg a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about China and Africa and Europe and the United States. And my kind of take on this, and this was my advice that I gave to this legislator, was, you know, we were talking about what does Europe stand for in Africa? And there was not a strong, coherent answer that came from this individual. And my advice was your North Star for what your policy should be, should be jobs and youth. And you will never go wrong if you focus on jobs and youth. 
And it was interesting to see his reaction. He like, took out his notebook and he scribbled it down. Jobs, youth, jobs, youth. <laughs> you would think that that would have been more obvious. But this is where I give the Chinese some credit because the focus on infrastructure and infrastructure financing is what will actually create the foundation for those jobs. And it's why I'm a little bit frustrated with the U.S. and European and even to some extent the Japanese agenda, which is much more focused on governance and much more focused on rights and much more focused on political issues, which, again, I believe are absolutely fundamental because you cannot have one without the other. But I think they are too short on the jobs and youth agendas. And so I think a little bit less focus on civil and political issues and more on economic and youth issues to me is overdue from the U.S. and Europeans. Because to Michele's point, if the goal is 19 million jobs, which is no way that Africa is ever going to get that to that level, because if China couldn't get to that level with a consolidated, unified government that is one government as opposed to 54, it's going to be very difficult for a continent as large and diverse as Africa to do that. That being said, that's a great goal to get to, but it's going to need a lot of financing, a lot of support, and a lot of coordination from outside partners to help African countries to achieve that. Jobs and youth should be the only thing, in my view, that we talk about. Yes, and you know, kind of that kind of brings us back to the conversation you had in a previous podcast about the end of the COP twenty seven, you know, kind of climate summit and the larger kind of loss and damage debate there. Is these things can't easily be disentangled. You know, African societies have been damaged by this kind of long legacy of both underdevelopment and climate damage. And it's only getting worse. And it's only getting worse, right? I mean it's not I mean, this is accelerating. I feel there's also some naivete in the global north around this issue because there seems to be this kind of assumption that they can just continue, you know, kind of extracting goods, like different kinds of assets from the global south while keeping all the global south people in the global south. I think that's a very unrealistic expectation. I don't think that's going to, particularly as more and more climate disruption happens, that's just not going to happen. Like, you know, kind of there's already parts of the Middle East and parts of South Asia where daytime temperatures are literally now outstripping what the human body can withstand. There's going to be whole zones around the earth where people won't be able to live in, at least not in the way that they're living there now. It is fascinating to see how, like, and, and this, this was one of the really kind of sobering aspects, I think, of COP27. It's really fascinating to see people really at the head of the world's most advanced economies, you know, the people who have the latitude and resources to be able to think really big, thinking really small, you know, kind of like really thinking about ways to try and kind of like lessen their own legal kind of, you know, the legal leverage over them in terms of loss and damage. All of these like really tiny, like little kind of like tactics rather Rather than seeing the big picture, which is like, oh, you know, things are really changing. Like things are changing in a way that these, that I think these economies really aren't quantifying. And so in that sense, you know, kind of like, yeah, I think what we, like illegal migration, I guess, is one word for like, for, for it. What, what another word could be the fences are going to be pushed flat. And what we're also seeing then in the, in, you know, kind of at the same time, which I think is really worrying, is this kind of rightward lurch in, you know, kind of in places like Europe, because that what that then implies is a complete failure of the kind of liberal politics project that has defined Europe and, and the United States for the last hundred years. You know, kind of if there isn't a way to think of European identity or American identity as including all of these migrants from the global south, then that becomes a massive political failure on their part, right? Kind of because then they're kind of withdrawing back into race politics and kind of blood and soil. And that is a massive tragedy. 
But you talk to a lot of people in Europe, even people who would define themselves as moderates, same in the United States, and they will tell you that this is a preservation of their culture, and this is not a failure. This is them protecting what's important to them. And again, I think from your point of view, it's viewed as a failure, but to their point of view, this is viewed as protecting important cultural traits, values, and languages, and so forth. But if those cultural traits can only survive in a little museum, then what good are they? Well, they are fighting, in their view, certainly in Sweden and Germany and Italy. I mean, she was elected in Italy on this platform to protect, you know, traditional Western Judeo-Christian values. And it's funny because every time I go to France, the toxicity of the discourse about Islam is just shocks me because we don't have that quite as much anymore in the U.S. It's in your face all the time, and there's nothing subtle about it. So I don't see a lot of hope and blue sky on more tolerance coming out of the U.S. and Europe. And by the way, China, Japan, South Korea are just as intolerant when it comes to immigrants. I mean, and just as, and worse. much worse. I mean, and they somehow skirt all of the same condemnation that we focus on the U.S. and Europe, and yet their policies are far more racist far more exclusionary, and it's just so much more offensive, and I wish that there would be a little bit more pressure put on those countries as well, because it is, I mean, it is awful. They will kind of just, you know, the Japanese will just keep their head down, you know, at the same time they're doing, they're again, they're on an extreme level compared to the Europeans. I mean, you look at Germany, you look at Sweden, they've taken, in, you know, you know a large numbers of migrants over the past 20 years at great cultural cost in many respects in terms of the transitions that have had the adaptation and the accommodation that's been made. And in, for the most part in Germany and Sweden, I think it's worked out pretty well overall. Again, I know there's a lot of people that would disagree with me on that, but I give them credit for doing it. In Japan, South Korea, and China, nothing, nothing. So I think that they deserve a lot of... <laughs> How would we say? We need a rating system, like, you know, you know, some emoji that will say, you know, bad emoji. So anyway, I am so glad we had this conversation. This is an overdue conversation. By the way, we've touched on probably seven third rails <laughs> that, you know, I have no doubt that this is going to generate quite a bit of response because it's a very emotive issue. This is one that is very complex. And I loved how Michele said he just wants to provoke a conversation. And that's what we're trying to do. So we would love to find more experts to talk about some of these demographic issues. Also, this demography question overlaps, Cobus, as you pointed out, with climate change, economy, geopolitics, racism, history. All of it is intertwined in this demography issue. So that's why I think it's absolutely fascinating. Let's leave our conversation there. If you are interested in all of these topics, Cobus and I and the rest of the Global South team are writing this every single day in our China Global South Daily Brief that goes out at 6 a.m. Washington time. We then convert all of the stories that we are producing into stories that go onto our website. We tag them by country, by topic, so it makes it really easy if you're a researcher to go back and find a lot of primary source material. Also, we're digging up tons of great stuff out of China, and especially now in China with so many fewer foreign correspondents who are there getting information about China is getting increasingly difficult. We have some fantastic researchers who are pouring through WeChat, 
pouring through the news media, finding some of the latest academic papers, and we're showcasing those. Again, we're trying to provide a balanced view of all of this. If you'd like to subscribe, go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. You will be supporting a team of independent journalists who all live in the Global South. All of us are in the Global South. I am the only member of the team from the Global North. Everybody else on the team is from the Global South. And that is so important to us to be able to bring you these voices that are vastly underrepresented in the broader discourse. So once again, chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGSProject and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>